If you have your Bible, please open it up and turn to the book of Ephesians again. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. We're going to read verse 25. It's going to be our uh, main text, our sort of launching text today. We're sort of continuing what we started last week. Um, this would sort of be like the application of last week's sermon. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. This is God's Word. You can have a seat. Last week, I ended with, by just barely looking. I just kind of read through Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Paul is, is sort of quoting what his prayer is for these churches. These churches in the area of Ephesus, he's prayed for them, and one of his prayer requests is that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? That's what He wants for them. He's praying it for them. And then He tells husbands in chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives with that same love. I'm praying that all the Christians know it. Even though it surpasses knowledge, you can't even fathom it. You can't understand it. But then husbands, I want you to look at it and love your wives that way. Mimic it in your home. And so we need to understand, men, that it, it is not until we begin to grasp, begin to understand all the different elements of the person and the work of Christ on the cross, in His humiliation, in His sufferings, in His death, that we can even begin to fathom how to love our wives. We, we can't. For, for most of what m many of us have known of church life, what you do is you get the couples together and you send them off on a retreat for the weekend and, and you, you try to help them learn how to love their spouses. And that's not it. You, you have to begin by plumbing the inexhaustible depth of the love of Jesus for His church that He's had in eternity past, going into eternity future, you begin to understand that, watch it displayed through the pages of Scripture and, and, and beyond, and then mimic that in your home. It's not something you learn over the weekend. It's not something you just put into practice or, or learn somebody's love language and buy them a gift after you've figured out what they like. That, that's not biblical. Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the pattern. That's what we learned last week. The pattern is, look at Christ. Look at how He has loved the church. And then, he also says, and gave Himself up for her. That's the precedent. The very first act, the very foundational picture we, we go to is Christ giving Himself up. For the church. That's the precedent. It happened in the past. 
We look back to it every day. We, we look, we're, we're, all day, we're, we're gazing, we're, we're glancing at Christ, giving Himself up, and then we're trying to mimic that with our wives. So the, the obvious question that we need to answer as we begin to just scratch the surface of this love is with what kind of love has Christ loved the church? What kind of a heart does it take to lay aside all you've ever known and all you've ever had for eternity for the sake of another? Now, we are commanded to do this for our wives. Most of us, I would think, love our wives. Our wives love us. There's some sort of mutual relationship there. Christ did this while we were still sinners. While we were His enemies, Christ died for us. So what, what kind of love has He shown? So This is where we're going. You see, we're scratching. We can't even begin to fathom this. What kind of love would compel the Lord of glory to do this? What would motivate the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to, to take on the form of an unborn baby. See, we usually start in the manger because we all oh, we love Christmas time. We love it. Oh my, we can decorate. We got the lights. We got the stuff. We love it. We don't. We we don't even think about the Lord of heaven and earth came into the form of an unborn child, lived off of the amniotic fluid that he himself designed in the womb of a woman. Then he was birthed from her loins, lived off of her body, the body of the woman he himself chose before the foundation of the world, was raised a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten, afflicted, rejected by his people, forsaken by his father for rebellious scoundrels who would every day forget what he had done. Every December, we would put lights up and trees and say, yeah, but Jesus. What, what, what kind of love compels Him to do that for us? And then husbands, once we learn, now do that in your home. Mimic that love. That's where we're going. Now wives, you, you get the opportunity to sit, to, to just listen and behold this glory, to pray for your husbands, as we, we walk through these, um, this sermon is, is a lot different than what I normally do. I've just got 11 different um, attributes of the love of Christ that I've found throughout Scripture, and we're just going to walk through them. They're kind of chronological in order, and we're going to talk about the love of Christ. So, the first heading, number one, Christ has loved the church with a covenant love. Covenant love. Our world knows, understands almost nothing about covenant. Nothing about commitment. It is, it's, it's surprising to, to no one in our day for someone to say they will do something and just not do it. Absolutely unsurprising. It, 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 we're just, it's every day. We see it. Somebody says something, they're going to do it. They don't do it. They know nothing of commitment. And this has come, come into the home. You get tired of a wife, you leave her. 
Your wife runs around on you, you leave her. She doesn't fulfill her duties around the house, you leave her. When she gets old and she loses her youthful beauty, you leave her. That's not the love that Christ has shown for the church. And that's not the love that He has commanded husbands to mimic for their wives. Christ has loved the church with a covenant love. And to understand this, we have to reach back into eternity into what is known as the covenant of redemption. A covenant between the members of the Trinity. Now we've talked about this just a little. This is where we begin to understand God's intentions before anything in the Bible ever happened. To understand what happens in these pages, we have to understand why do anything, God? Why even start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? If you get that question wrong, everything else is wrong. The answer is the covenant of redemption. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, we see a little snippet, a little phrase that if you're reading, it should catch you. Notice this. Paul says, speaking of eternal life, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now notice, before the ages began, eternal life. Now we know that we are the recipients of eternal life. That's us. And this says that God promised eternal life before the ages began. So the question that we would ask is, who was He making a promise to? We weren't around before the ages began. There was no one around before the ages began except the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. That, that, they were all that was. God promised the eternal life of a people to the Son. The terms of this covenant being, Son, you must redeem these people. When you go and redeem these people, they will be your people. You must achieve salvation. You must achieve redemption for these people. They will be yours. Now, I will support that. Listen to this from John chapter 6, verse 39. Jesus says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now notice, Jesus says, The Father has given me. Past tense. It's already happened. The Father has already given the Son a people. And the Father, it is the will of the Father that the Son lose none of those. Those whom the Father chose before the foundation of the world, He gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. The terms being, you must achieve their salvation. The Son comes into time and space to achieve their salvation, and He will lose none of them. John 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Again, past tense. All of this authority, Jesus has this authority to give the promised eternal life to all the Father has given Him in ages past. Those promised in the covenant of redemption... Jesus has the authority 
to save them, to secure them, to give them eternal life. John 17, 6, again, the Father still in, in prayer with the Son and Jesus praying to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Again, you gave me. Yours they were. Jesus is praying to His Father. Father, they were your people in the past. You gave them to me. You've already chosen them. You've already promised eternal life to them. Now you've given authority to the Son to come and achieve eternal life for them. That's the covenant of redemption. The Father and the Son covenanting together to achieve the salvation of God's elect. Luke twenty two twenty, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, Jesus speaking, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the new covenant, the covenant that seals the salvation of God's people, those promised to the Son before times eternal, sealed in the blood of Jesus. It was a covenant that sent the Son. It was a covenant that sealed the bride. So as the church, as Christians, we are wrapped up in the covenant love, not just between us and, and, and Jesus, not just between us and the Father, between the Father and the Son. There's a covenant going on that we are caught up in between the very Trinity itself. Christ has loved us with a covenant love. He did not just show up and say, I hope someone will believe. He wasn't hanging on the cross saying, I hope there will be some who will put their faith in me. Now, when the world, the men of the world get married, they, they tend to think, well, this is who I ended up with and I'm going to make the best of it. But if it gets too difficult, I'm out. If it turns out that maybe we're really not all that compatible, I'll split. When the redeemed husband says, I've set my love on this woman... I've set my affections on this woman. I've made a covenant with my God and with this woman before many witnesses. It's, it's sealed. It's done. There's no questioning. There are no other options. The covenant is made. Christ has loved the church with a covenant love. Number two, Christ has loved the church with an intentional love. Intentional love. Revelation Chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. Again, many of these proof texts that we find, they're just little snippets of stuff that, that come together to form very, very big truths. Speaking of the beast, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now remember last week we read Christ gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The picture there is the Old Testament sacrificial Lamb. The Lamb slain for the atonement of the people. Here we read that there were names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So 
in God's economy, outside of time, before the foundation of the world, the lamb was as good as slain. It's, it's already a done deal. And then when the fullness of time has come, human time, human history, God sent His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to actuate what was already as good as done in God's eternal decree. So it began at eternity past. The Lamb was as good as slain. In John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus says I'm, He's beginning to get a little weary about the cross and about what's about to happen. But He says, well, what am I going to say at this point? Get me out of here? This is the very reason I came. Intentional. The whole intention of His coming was to go to the cross. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Christ approaches Calvary, prays to the cross, or pray, prays to the Father as He looks at the cross, and He says, Father, I'm completing all the work that you had given me to do. Intention. The reason He came was to complete the work on the cross. It's why He came. It was His intention to go to the cross. Christ came into the world with His face set toward Calvary from the very beginning. Sacrificial love at every stage planned from eternity. Husbands, we have to love our wives with this same intentionality. It doesn't just happen, okay? It's not organic. It's not spontaneous. She doesn't just know, okay? You get up in the morning and go to work and come home and she doesn't think, wow, he really loves me today. We're men. We're created to work. We would do it anyway because we have to buy our stuff. You have to be intentional. You have to plan. You have to set goals. You have to prepare. Establish non-negotiable priorities in the home so that your families are actually going in the direction of your intentions. Plan to love your wife. Be intentional about laying down your life for her greater good. It has to be intentional. It's not just going to develop or happen. It's a covenant love. It is an intentional love. Number three, it is an exclusive love. Exclusive love. This is where we get our doctrine of uh, particular redemption, definite atonement, limited atonement. We answer the question here, for whom did Christ die? Well, Ephesians 5.25 tells us exactly for whom Christ died. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Who did Christ give up Himself for? Her. The church. His bride. Not another woman. Not a harlot. His bride. His wife. The church. In John chapter 10, Jesus goes to another analogy. He goes from the leaving the, the husband and the bride picture. He goes now to the shepherd and the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I, laid, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, when we read that, we can ask several questions. For whom does the good shepherd lay down his life? Answer, the sheep. Not the goats, not the wolves, the sheep. Who does the good shepherd know? His own sheep. Who knows the good shepherd? His own sheep. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep, not the wolves, not the goats. John 15, verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, as disciples, as members of the bride, we are taken out of the world. If you have a bag of candy and you take some out of the bag, what you have in your hand is out of the bag. It's separate from the bag. He's taken His disciples, His people, out of the world. We are a particular people. In John 17, 9, He says it as clear as it could ever be said, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He just says it. I'm not praying for the world. In the high priestly prayer, high priests have two duties. Pray, which he's doing here, and offer up the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he does it for his own disciples, his sheep, his bride, the church. The sacrificial love that Christ displays on the cross is for his bride, his people. It's not for the world. Jesus gave himself up for the church, his very own particular chosen covenant bride. Now, take this over to marriage. In the world, hey, you fall in love, out of love, multiple times over the course of your life. If you're in a relationship that seems somewhat serious, you can give yourself to that person physically, emotionally, mentally. Or you might commit yourself outwardly to one person, but inwardly you harness desires for multiple wives, women, lusts and passions for many different women. When the redeemed husband says, I've set my love on this bride. I am hers. She is mine. Now, we are to love all people. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. But I don't love all the other women like I love my bride. I have a special love for my bride. Our eyes, men, are for our wives. Our bodies are for our wives. Our innermost thoughts and emotions are for our wives. The redeemed husband has an exclusive love for his bride. Number four, selfless love. Selfless love. Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Let each of you not on, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we saw this last week. Jesus emptied himself. He was looking to the best interest of others, not himself. He was obedient to the point of death on the cross for the sake of his bride. Now when we look at the world, you see 
men getting married for many different selfish reasons or divorcing for many different selfish reasons. They get married for financial benefits or get divorced for financial benefits. Get married for physical pleasure, for, for a boost of ego or just because that was your, your life goal. You just always wanted to be married and therefore you get married. But the redeemed husband knows I'm getting married in order to lay down my life for the sake of another. I'm emptying myself for the sake of another. If I were to pass out a test and have husbands write down, and the question on the test was, husbands, why did you marry your wife? Many of you would write down, because she's smart, because she's funny, because she has a great personality, because she's beautiful, because she's a great friend. The problem with those answers is that they all benefit you. They're all selfish answers. Christian men marry as a part of God's plan for sanctification, for help in life, and for the continuation of a godly seed on the earth. Those other things are benefits. They're extras. It has nothing to do with self-fulfillment. It's not about you. It's selfless love. Number five, sympathizing love. Christ has loved the church with sympathizing love. That is, He can feel what we feel. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In Christ's humiliation, He took on our form. He took on the form of a servant. He was subject to every temptation that we are subject to. Why? He did it out of love so that He could be the perfect high priest, a faithful high priest. See, a high priest represents the people to God. So He has to relate to the people and to God. But see, Jesus is fully God. So he humbles himself to take on the form of a servant and now he has to get into the place of a man and and feel everything that we feel and be tempted in, in the ways that we are so that he can be a true and faithful great high priest representing us to God. He knows how we feel and he did this for us out of love. Now, worldly husbands are separated from their wives in almost everything. Like I said last week, you generally have two separate people doing two separate things, two separate lives. They just happen to live in the same house. This idea, the book that was written years ago, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. The whole concept of we're just from alien planets. There's no way we could ever understand how one another thinks and how one another We're so different, why even try? We're we're from foreign worlds, and so all of life is is spent in trying to learn how to cohabitate while maintaining our separation, our distinction. When the redeemed husband follows the pattern of Christ, he, he seeks after knowing his bride intimately, learning her ways. He lets go of himself, he lets go of his pride, because he really wants to understand how she thinks and how she feels. Now this is hard for men 
Because we, 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 we take a sense of, of pride in not thinking like women. Not knowing how our wives think and feel. But a, a redeemed husband will, will pursue this so that he can better relate to his wife. So that the actions of his love will be more fit for her and not just generic woman on card. For your bride, your wife. Sympathizing love. Know how she feels. But then Jesus goes one step further. Number six, empathizing love. He, he doesn't just know how we feel. He's actually been in our shoes. Empathizing love. To sympathize is to say, I, I kind of see how, how, how you feel. Empathizing says, I've been there. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus not only feels what we feel, he not only sympathizes with how we feel and our weaknesses, he actually knows exactly what it's like. He's been in our shoes. He's wearing our skin. He's been there. He took on flesh and blood so that he could say, I destroyed death in your own flesh and blood. Now again, men try to separate themselves. It's a point at work and around the water cooler and around the guys. It's a point of bragging and boasting to, to separate yourself from your wife. Well, I just, you know, I don't, I can't never think like she thinks. Man, well, she's just way over there and she does this and she does that. And well, I just don't know. She's just so strange. She's so far, and we, and we brag about this. When the redeemed husband should brag about the fact that he can experience and feel the joys and the delights and the sorrows and the pains of his bride because, hey, I'm one flesh with my wife. I know how she feels. I know how she thinks because I took the time to invest and, and be close to her because we function as one flesh, not as two separate beings. So it's sympathizing love. It's empathizing love. Number seven, Christ has loved the church with sacrificial love. Ephesians 5.25, again, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up. We looked at this last week. He gave Himself up. He emptied Himself of all that He had ever known, all that He had ever been, for her, for the church. He sacrificed it. John chapter 10, verse 15. Again, Jesus says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, you have now, but have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. Jesus gave up His physical life for His bride, for the church. He, he was beaten, He suffered, was bruised and mocked and ridiculed and eventually crucified in a physical body for His wife, for His bride. And then beyond all that, worse than that, in His body He bore all of the guilt for all of the sins of all of God's people from all of time at one time on the cross and then took all of God's wrath against all of those sins in His body on the tree and He did it because He loved His bride. 
Now, generally, we want love as long as it costs us nothing. If it's free, if it's easy, if it's simple, that's love. Because it's something that just kind of comes to us. It just kind of takes us over and, and wafts us away and we kind of float away on it and it's, it's like a cloud. But that's not love. The redeemed husband commits to loving his wife no matter the cost. He may truly have to die for his wife, but, but even worse than that, most of us, I mean, if it came down to it, we would die for our wives. I think we would. But the next step is actually harder. We, we actually have to live 24 hours a day, seven days a week for our wives, still, still breathing, still blood pumping in our veins. We, we still have a, a, a will and a desire to do our own thing, but we have to sacrifice that. That's actually harder than giving up your physical life. The redeemed husband works and plans and sets aside his personal nonsense for the sake of another to see her grow in the Lord. Number eight, Christ has loved the church with a redeeming love. Christ delivers His bride from tyranny and He gives her a new purpose. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Christ's love compelled Him to die for His bride and, and His death Redeemed his bride. He, he bought her. He purchased her out of slavery. He set her free from the tyranny of, of sin and death. He gave her a new purpose. He gave her a new name. He transferred her to a new owner. Do we now belong to God? The greatest promise in all of the Bible and all of Scripture is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Christ has done that for his bride. Generally, the typical worldly marriage, when a husband comes along and takes a bride, he simply leeches onto her and becomes just another burden on top of her already strenuous life of struggles and, and fighting. The burdens and struggles she already had, he's just another one that she has to carry along with her. The redeemed husband, like Hosea, like Christ, comes and sets his love on his bride. And he gives her a new name and a new purpose. He, he holds up the price of a bride. And he says, no, no, no. She will not belong to another. She's my bride. She will take my name. I will purchase her. I will take her. I will give her a new purpose. I will give myself to seeing her purified and, and cleansed and sanctified and washed. Redeeming love. Number nine, Christ has loved the church with a forgiving love. Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How is it that God forgave us in Christ? Well, it's by sending Christ to live in our place and to die in our place, to be raised for our justification. The debt that we owed, Christ propitiated and we are forgiven. We're released from the guilt of sin. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're set free. We've been forgiven. Our debt absorbed in Christ. Christ has loved us 
with a forgiving love. See, the, the worldly contrast, again, is the husband says, well, I'll, I'll love her as long as she does no wrong to me. I'll love her as long as she respects me. I'll love her as long as she's faithful to me. I'll love her as long as she loves me. But if at any time any wrong is committed to me, I'm going to hold a grudge. The relationship will at least be fractured, if not broken, forever. That's worldly love. And the redeemed husband looks at what Christ has done for himself. He looks at what Christ has done for the church. And when his wife wrongs him, he forgives as he has been forgiven. When his wife is falling short in, in honor and respect, he forgives as he has been forgiven. When his wife is unfaithful, she, he forgives as he has been forgiven. And if at any time a husband thinks that his wife's sin is any worse than his sin, he should stop looking at her sin and his sin and look at Christ on the cross dying for both sins, for the sin of both parties. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Christ has loved us with a forgiving love. Number 10, Christ has loved us with a selfish love. Now this sounds contrary to number 4. Contrary was, or number 4 was selfless. This one is selfish. Now I'll explain. Notice, if you still have your Bibles, in Ephesians 5 verses 29 and 30, Paul says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of His body. The church is the body of Christ. So in essence, the love of Christ for the church is a love for His own body Himself. In essence, in a spiritual sense. And in Ephesians 5.28, Paul says in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now that does not mean, husbands, you love your wife in the same way that you love yourself. Because he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. It means, love your wife because she is yourself. She is your body. Love her that way. You are one flesh. Christ died for the church because she is His body. He redeemed His body. He loved His body. Now the worldly contrast, the husband says, well, well, that's my wife. Yes, she's my best friend. Yes, she's my, my life partner. Yes, she's my soulmate, but she's another person. When the redeemed husband says, that's my body. That is the rest of me. We are one flesh. We're not separate. We're not distinct. Husband, your wife is a part of your body. Love her that way. Treat her like she is a part of you. And, and I just add this, because I heard a pastor do this. I did this. I challenge you men to do this. Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Nourishes it and cherishes it. Husbands, Go home today and ask your wives, Honey, do you feel like I nourish you? Honey, do you feel like I cherish you more than anything else? Underneath Christ. Ask her. Tell her to be honest. Because this says, 
No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. If she's a part of your flesh, you will nourish her and cherish her like she's a part of your body. So, ask her how you're doing. Last one, number 11. Christ has loved the church with an equipping love. This continues on even still today, an equipping love. The first passage is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, which we've looked at. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ fills all in all. The great power that fills the church and makes the church all that it is, is Christ. He fills all in all. It is from Him, through Him, and to Him that all things are. He, he is the, the foundation, the root, the support, everything. He makes the church what she is. Now another passage. Look at Ephesians 4. You're going to want to look at this one because I'm going to walk through it slowly. This was a, a bigger one. And there's a lot here. Ephesians 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, we'll leave that up there and I'm going to listen. Now, now, what are those offices? Think about it. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Or some translations say shepherd teachers. What are those offices? Those are all teaching, proclaiming, word offices, word-centered offices. They are centered on proclaiming the Word of God. Apostles carry the message of the Word of God. Prophets, prophetes, they, they speak forth the Word of God. Evangelists, they proclaim the good news of the Word of God. Shepherd teachers, they teach the Word of God. They shepherd the flock. They're all word-centered offices. Jesus gave them to the church. Why? Why would he give these offices to the church? Well, it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So Christ gave these offices to the church to get the word out, constantly putting out the word of God so that you, you guys that are not preaching the word, the saints would be equipped for ministry. And the ultimate purpose is the building of the body. The church is built up when the word goes out. So Jesus gave preaching, teaching, positions, offices to the church so that you guys would be equipped for the ministry of the church so that the church would then grow into a healthy body. Now, just as an aside, are you doing it? You're receiving the word, I hope. Are you doing the ministry of the church? Are you fulfilling the ministry of the church? Or are you just receiving? Now, now to what end is the church built up? He keeps, he keeps writing here, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So Paul says the goal of the church being built up 
into a body is mature manhood, like a, like a, a boy growing up into a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we're no longer, and, and the, the measure of the maturity is no longer deceived by false teaching. You're not, you're not carried away anymore. You know, you've, you've heard the word. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd, teachers, they taught you the word. You're strengthened, you're built up, you're mature, you're not pushed around, and you're doing the ministry of the church. But rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are, we are to grow up in every way into Him, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, we're, we're not to be tossed about and pushed around by false doctrine. We're to grow up into the head, into Christ, into maturity. From whom, he ends, from Christ, the body grows up. Again, he fills all in all. From him, through him, and to him. He equips the church. Christ gives the teaching offices to the church to put out the word to the church so that you are equipped for the ministry of the church so that you grow into maturity and the church is built up as a church so that it can fend off false teaching, can speak the truth in love as a church and be a mature, healthy body for Christ. Christ is an equipping husband. And husbands, we should seek to love our wives this way. Now the worldly husband, he says, well... You know, she does, she does her quiet time and, we do, and I do my quiet time and we just, we just try to keep our spiritual lives separate because, you know, it's just spiritual and, and she... No, no, sir. The redeemed husband understands we are one flesh. It is my responsibility. Now, she should have her own relationship with God. But it's my responsibility to see that my wife is growing in maturity. That she is maturing into a mature Christian. She's growing. The redeemed husband, his spiritual relationship will be affected when his wife isn't maturing. The redeemed husband knows he's held accountable to see that his wife grows into maturity and in faith. That she's being washed in the Word daily. The redeemed husband wants to see his wife sanctified and conformed into the image of Christ. Because he knows that's, that's the goal. That's the greatest good. We've got, we're hoping as we're married, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years together, the goal is that at the end, we're both more like Christ. And husbands, that comes back on us. We've got to get our wives into the image of Christ. We oversee that. It's our responsibility to lead in that direction. Now, again, scratching the surface. We're looking at the, the, the love of Christ and we're just scratching. We're, we're grasping for straws. Paul says it surpasses knowledge. We can't fathom the covenant love, the, the forgiving love, the redeeming love, the empathizing, sympathizing love of Christ. But we can study it. We can study it. We can seek to experience it in our lives. We can ask the Holy Spirit, help me to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Help me to know this love so that I can know Christ, number one, and so that I can know how to love my wife, number two. See, the world, when we walk out the doors, the world needs to see a demonstration of redemption. 
They need to see a demonstration of the church living out what it confesses to believe. Our children need to see husbands who love their wives like Christ loved the church way more than they need toys or giggles or fun time. They need fathers who love their mothers. Jesus asked once after a little lesson on prayer, He says, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? I would ask, when the Son of Man comes, will He find any husbands who say, I'm a Christian and love their wives like Christ has loved the church? Will He find any men who display this type of selfless love for their bride? See, if we're going to make any multi-generational difference, it has to start with us, husbands. This, This is my ministry outlook... I don't know what you would call it. Because I know that if I can get husbands, or I should say if God, the Holy Spirit, gets the heart of the husbands, then He gets wives. And if He gets wives, then He gets children and families. And if He gets children and families, then He'll get grandchildren. And He'll get great-grandchildren. And in 20 and 30 and 40 years, multi-generational Faith has been carried on because husbands said, I'm done with the foolishness. I'm going to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And here's what I fear, is that there are men in this room, in a hundred years your children will be in hell because you've chosen not to love your wife. It starts with loving your wife like Christ loved the church. Your children see that. You model the gospel for them in your home. You're an evangelist in your home. And they're redeemed. They hear the gospel. They're saved. They're raised in it. They teach their kids the gospel. They're saved. They teach their kids the gospel. They're saved. It continues on. If all we ever try to do as a church is get this group of people right here to understand the book of Matthew before we die, we've wasted our time. We've got to get a a vision for children, grandchildren, and and the world. And showing the world a picture of multi-generational Faithfulness. And it starts with husbands, love your wives. All throughout the Scriptures, read the Old Testament. All throughout the Scriptures, as you're reading, as they address groups, you wonder, were there even any women present? The way that they speak, they're just addressing men. Men, men, men. Then you come to the New Testament and they address wives. But it was, it, it was, just, it was just a known fact. If we can get the men to get this, and get the men on board with this, we've got the families. We just got to get the men. Let's pray.